Hello and welcome back to New Books Network in Military History. I'm John Abatello, your host for today's interview. And today we'll be talking to Terrence J. Finnegan, Terry Finnegan, about his new book entitled A Delicate Affair on the Western Front, America Learns How to Fight a Modern War in the Verve Trenches. Terry is re- Hello and welcome back to New Books Network in Military History. I'm John Abatello, your host for today's interview. And today we'll be talking to Terrence J. Finnegan, Terry Finnegan, about his new book entitled A Delicate Affair on the Western Front, America Learns How to Fight a Modern War in the Verve Trenches. Terry is a retired U.S. Air Force Reserve Colonel who spent most of his military career as an intelligence officer. He is also the author of Shooting the Front, Allied Aerial Reconnaissance in the First World War. Terry, welcome to the show. John, it's great to see you. Thanks so much. Thanks. Um, hey, let's let's begin, if you don't mind, with uh, a few words about yourself. Could you just give us a brief biography? Glad to. Uh, I've had the pleasure of serving the nation in two capacities, one being an Air Force Reserve officer and the other being a civil servant working within the intelligence world for almost 25, 30 years. Uh, the two complemented each other. Uh, and then as I was winding down in career, I had the, the blessing of being able to uh, work a partial assignment at the Air Force Academy. That's where I met you and had a chance to uh, get introduced to the world of, of uh, in-depth research because the Air Force Academy Library was the mother load of data. It was amazing to be able to sit there and find incredible sources, not to mention the fact that uh, a lot of that stuff was unique because folks had provided their archives to the Air Force Academy. It was great. Um, so that said, um, I had a chance to get Shooting the Front published, and then uh, I had a ongoing desire to work on a book called, well, on this topic we're t- discussing right now. Uh, my grandfather served in the National Guard World War I. In fact, he was one of the longest serving National Guardsmen in the entire war because he was one of the first National Guardsmen to show up in Europe in September of 1917. And then he stayed on after the armistice and was in the occupation forces in near Koblenz, Germany and left about May of 1919. He was a medic. And so he saw every major action except for the first division's fight at Cantigny. So that said, I had a personal interest to see what he experienced when we look at the way the war evolved, particularly from the American perspective. And the challenge for most Americans is that they really don't have a real depth of thinking about what this war is about, because for all intents and purposes, it was like 18 months of, of declared war between us and the Central Powers. And yet, you think about it, it took Americans about 12 months just to figure out how they were going to fight this war. And I think that's the fascinating discussion, which leads into the discussion about the book that we're talking about now. Well, it's great so, that you have uh, such a personal connection on the one hand, with the topic, and then the you know the experience and the research uh, skills and writing skills uh, from your past book and from your military career to be able to put this all together to tell the story uh, of the battle that we're going to talk about. So, 
Can you go ahead and just give us a, an over-the-world kind of overview of what your book is about uh, as an initial kind of dive into what we're going to talk about today? Gladly. Understand that, again, the world of 1914-1918 was probably one of the most tumultuous in the history of mankind because all the world order up until that time radically changed in 1919 of the decimation of the populations and just the horror experience. So when you think about the American role, America obviously was a few thousand miles away, had the, the sanctity of the Atlantic Ocean provide them with that buffer. Yes, there was issues involving maritime disasters like Lusitania and the U-boats and stuff like that, which really brought the Americans more and more into the fight. But the American army basically had the challenge. Because up until 1917, uh, for all intents and purposes, their experience base was guerrilla war. They had fought in the Philippine campaign. They had chased Pancho Villa down in Mexico. They had other small engagements, nothing of the, of the size and dimension required for a world war like was being experienced by the European powers in 1914 to 1918. So from the standpoint of what we're talking about here, uh, the discussion goes into the fact that how do you introduce something as important as the First World War to an American audience, or for that matter, any reading audience, interested audience, on what exactly is this thing called World War I involving the American forces. So I had four parts in the book, and the first one is called A National Business, where the research leading up to that kind of tells as humanly possible, what is this dynamic called the military fighting in this type of war? And I addressed it from various angles. I think what folks need to understand about the writings that have occurred up to this date on War One have been culturally biased. For the most part, it's written in English, and that means you have an English audience or American audience that means you're going to weigh the discussion for what exactly was the role of the Americans or the British, in this case, in the way they fought. That's important. But the enemy, the German enemy or the Austro-Hungarian enemy, depending on where they were, or for that matter, the other allies, be it the French, who were, oh, by the way, probably the leading combatant on the Western Front, and then on the Eastern Front, obviously, you have the Russians. These uh, armies played such an incredibly important role in shaping the way modern warfare evolved. And so what you see when you look at the research that's been done, in this case, discussing the, the way the trench warfare evolved. And I start in 1914 because the sector that we're looking at was in the place called the Verve. And for us non-French uh, speaking folks, we automatically think it means wove. Well, guess what? It's an Asian comment of verve with the W being a V. So that said, you find the operations that took place in 1914 to be fast moving. And for the most part, that was probably the most mobile battlefield that occurred on the Western Front until the last few weeks of the war in 1918. So I wanted to bring that into the discussion of the fact that what you have is the 
the Germans methodically employing very fast battlefield techniques, employing mobility that was very impressive. Rail reinforcement was all carefully planned and part of their strategy. And you see the way they dominated, particularly in this case in the Verve region, and they end up capturing the key point of San Miel, which is where they had a major American offensive in September of 1918 to liberate that sector. But this is where the, most of the discussion is for this book, is the San Miel region. And what's important about San Miel is it was a critical rail line into Verdun. And if anybody understands World War I, you know that Verdun was probably one of the most catastrophic battles ever fought on the planet. And yet, logistically, they the French had to take responsibility in moving supplies and troops by other means into that battle sector because they didn't have the luxury of the rail line that went through Samuel because the Germans owned it. So that said, uh, the national business first part kind of goes into that detail to get folks thinking, all right, what does it take to fight a major war? And I applied perspectives not only from the Americans, but from the French and the Germans. And this is part of the challenge when you work on World War I, is you have to become introduced and hopefully familiar and hopefully somewhat of an expert on what does it mean to be a German commander in World War I. How do they operate? This is a general staff's thinking. How do you get folks to understand how decisions are made? A German Hauptmann, a captain on a general staff, has as much authority as a regular line colonel in the German army because it's general stop. And that psychology has to be clearly understood when you look at the way orders are generated and so on and so on. So it's a, it was a fascinating introduction for me to do the deep dive research to find just what it meant for them to conduct the operations that they did. On the French side, the French obviously suffered the greatest in regards to the, the war for the most part was fought on their soil. So they had to hold the ground. and the sad stories that come out from the four years of combat is they had to take extreme measures to make sure they didn't lose any more ground to what they already had in 1914. And you find that policies start to shift rather to Cronian measures in that they use terms like sacrifice positions. Or in the case of Verdun in 1916, they shall not pass. So when you discuss in those terms, what does that mean? That means you will stay and fight and die in place. Now, why is this important for the discussion in this book? Because it's that theme, sacrifice positions, which has been forgotten by historians over the last century. And you find it becoming more and more evident when you do the research and your readings and so on and so on from those who actually fought the battle that they did hold the ground. And that they, in this case, were the French beforehand and then the Americans coming into the sector. And they held it as honorably and as effectively as one could ever have done uh, by any adversary, any combatant in that war. So it's kudos to the American fighting man. And that's one of the honors of being able to do the research is to find just that story that's been kind of put underground for 100 years. The prevailing sentiment of what happened here was this was a quiet sector. So that meant there was a live and let live environment. People just kind of went through the throes of having to be on the front lines. 
but they realized that they weren't going to be taken on in a ma- any major way by uh, an offensive of note. Well, to an extent, that was true. But guess what? Uh, artillery ruled World War One, and it was a very catastrophic and dangerous environment, no matter how you cut it, either from the high explosives being fired at you or, by the way, the chemical rounds. And so what we find is weapons of mass destruction being effectively introduced into modern warfare on the trench lines of the Western and Eastern fronts. And so everybody has to learn how to endure in that environment for weeks at a stretch to be able to fight and to protect yourself against the inbound chemical rounds, whatever those are. And oh, by the way, they didn't just use an artillery. They had very effective launching mechanisms, be it uh, projectiles or whatever, that brought out huge volumes of chemical into the no man's land or whatever, depending on the way the wind blew, to be able to how they responded. So understanding this environment, that's what I wanted to craft here. And another addition, I obviously, because I did work on shooting the front, became somewhat expert on the entire military intelligence architecture of the First World War. Obviously, folks pay lip service to intelligence. They figure, okay, everybody's an intel expert. You know that, Bill John, because obviously when we were in the Air Force, everybody could become an intel guy. Well, the reality being what it is, is to understand this, to be able to effectively apply the sources that you are collecting and then do the initial analysis and then disseminate that data to the decision makers so they can make the right decisions, that had to be clearly brought into play. And so thanks to shooting the front, giving me that introduction, I saw how aerial reconnaissance was accomplished. I saw how aerial photography applied. I then in turn measured up what exactly it was, the signals intelligence role, how they were able to communicate by wiretapping or through uh, collecting high-frequency radio waves, and then in turn being able to translate the information or decipher whatever the code is, and so on, so on, so on. All very sophisticated for its time. I think folks have to clearly understand it. There wasn't anything real revolutionary in the 20 years that followed in World War II being fought because all those lessons had been learned as involved intelligence in World War I. So what you see when you look at this book is a in-depth discussion of, okay, here is a battleground, here are the combatants, oh, by the way, here is how they are enduring, be it from having to make a phone call, and then all of a sudden you have the enemy listening in, and for good measure, sometimes the German uh, wiretapper threw in his own comments, making snide remarks to the general officers. You know, this is an incredible Mind expansion as it involves the way we look at warfare today is that for anybody to infiltrate your zone of communication, your, as we used to call it, OODA loop, the, the fact is that it really creates chaos in your thinking and decision making and so on and so on. And what you find from doing the research is in this quiet sector, the German adversary who owned that part of the battleground for four years knew every square inch. And they knew exactly where to apply the wiretaps, and they knew where to infiltrate, and so on, so on. And here comes the Americans. Now, what amazes us when you look at how the Americans fought is, for the most part, they didn't have the depth training that they needed to fight a modern war. Guerrilla war being what it was, 
you find them becoming more and more uh, astute, and Americans learn fast on the on the run because that's the, our nature, our culture. But they had harsh lessons to learn, and the verb provided that training ground by the harsh realities of what they discovered. So you have in the verb French ownership. One of the first units in there was a colonial division, which was also comprised of the French Foreign Legion. And those guys basically did their thing effectively in that sector, taking on the German units that were opposing them. What we did not go into detail when we look at the history is that the Americans were introduced to responsibility of holding ground in a piecemeal way. Oh, by the way, they just didn't automatically go to the front lines. What they did was they were brigaded with their French counterparts. And the French owned the command. They owned the, the command of that sector. They were the tactical commanders. So folks like Pershing, who are the army commander for the United States military, and then you have Liggett, who is the administrative commander for the American military that's coming on board. And what you find is that the American divisional commanders, in this case, Robert Lee Bullard, uh, have to become subordinate to the French commander. In this case, it was General Pasaga, who was the 32nd Corps commander. And above him, you have an 8th Army commander, Girard. Now, what you find is with this echelon of French command is the Americans learned how to operate in a multinational environment. Oh, by the way, for the first time in history, they are subordinate to a foreign element in their military command. So it's a rethinking of the way they have traditionally fought for almost 200 years. So, so in, yeah, so in the so the first part of the book, you, you give us all that context. You give us the, yeah. uh, the the nuts and bolts of warfare, really, and what was going on in the Verve region leading up to the Americans being deployed there into the quote quiet sector, as you as you talked about. But there's no such thing really as a quiet sector in the First World yeah. War. Um, so then, um, you know, the first division is there, the U.S. Yeah. First Division. Uh, and then the 26th the Yankee Division, which was a, a National Guard division, the first division being a regular division. Can you talk right. a little bit about uh, how the U.S. was organized, what our army was like as we were arriving there in France, um, uh, you know, right before and leading up to this this first major battle that you're writing about? Yes, very good. Because part of the challenge is Americans had to reorganize their entire divisional structure to fight this war. Up until that time, they had regiments assigned, and they were under the traditional regimental structure that had been existing since the Civil War. And then all of a sudden, they had to reorganize all of that. They had to numerically rethink their units. So divisions 1 through 25 became regular Army unit designations. Then 26 to, I believe it was, uh, 45 became the National Guard designations. And then beyond that, you have the National Army. Those are your draftees. So the regular army being what it is, you know, those are the folks who are professional military folks. You are a regular Air Force. You know all about that. You find them going with a certain attitude that they know their job. 
irony of ironies is that they weren't fully manned to work at the level of requirement. In other words, their divisional strength went up to 27,000 men per division. The normal division for a German or a French fighting force was about 10 to 11,000 men. So you're doubling the size automatically. These huge formations are coming to Europe. And the first four, the first division, regular army, the second division, regular army, oh, by the way, comprised of one brigade of Marines. Then you have the Yankee division, the YD, 26th division. And then you have the Rainbow Division, the 42nd, which gets all of its notoriety thanks to Jimmy Cagney and the 69th and so on and so on. But the the first division is the first one there. And then thanks to the astute maneuverings of the Yankee Division's commander, Clarence Edwards, they were able to become the second division, basically usurping the transport roles and here it is, the YD shows up in September when they had hoped for the Rainbow Division, which was comprised of National Guard elements across the nation, to become the second division or definitely after the second division arrived. So in other words, the YD was not on anybody's preconceived ideas of where, who was going to be the first end to the fight. So thanks to Clarence Edwards, they were able to capture uh, enough uh, merchant vessels in, in the North New England region, and they shipped an entire division over to include artillery. See, the first division showed up, and they had to depend totally on French artillery. And the YD was able to acquire more of that resource, and so they came in fully armed. So there was some consternation at the Pershing headquarters staff. Why is this going on? Because we want to do it according to our planning, which is regular army first, and then we'll make sure that the right National Guard unit shows up. And here's the YD upstaging everybody showing up at the time that they do. So the first division shows up, goes into in March, no, I'm sorry, mid-January 1918. Once they're into the sector, and they basically own a sector that's for um, a one brigade size unit. So in American terms, that means two regiments are supporting that one brigade. So the 18th, and I think it was the 26th regiment, or infantry, I should say, shows up, and they're part of the infrastructure that includes the Beaumont Ridge, includes Seshpray, and includes Wa Ramar forest area. That basically is their brigade area that they're going to defend for the first time on their own against the German adversary. So... Once they're there, they learn how to rebuild the trenches and so on, so on, so on, and they get a routine down. But they also learn about the lethality associated with heavy artillery and so on, so on, because the Germans realize we're going to have to test these Americans' metal to make sure that they are formidable. And they find, for the most part, you know, they're just like any other brand-new military force. They've got to take it in the chin, and they've got to learn how to adapt. But the Germans fighting them are the 78th Reserve Division. The 78th was established in Russia and on the Russian front, and then they went to Verdun, and then they came south. And this is a division whose commander, Paulus von Stolzmann, was a chief of staff on the Russian front, and for three years, he got the Pur Merit 
1915 for knowing how to organize a major army infrastructure against the Russians. So he had in-depth experience. And then you have, at the major level, the, inf- the regiment, regimental commander for the Reserve Infantry Regiment 258, uh, Herman Brunts. Brunts, if ever was anybody who taught the American military how to fight a modern war, it was this guy. Because he organized the German military's operations against the Americans, starting with the 1st Division and then ongoing with the Yankee Division when they came in replacement in April 1918. And Brunts had been here from the creation. He was part of the von Schlieffen effort. He got promoted. Uh, Noteworthy was one of his major assignments was at the major battle in 1917 at Cambrai, where the uh, the British had a major tank offensive, and then the Germans counterattacked effectively and defeated the British after that tank offensive. Well, Bruns was part of that counterattack. So he understood what it meant to fight effectively. And getting back to the national, uh, the first section of the book, the, the business, what you find is discussion on how the Germans interpret the evolving battlefield, how the positional war is to be fought, how they maneuver ground forces effectively. That's as descriptive as one could ever read. Because the fact is, I've got the sources that go into the details that show how the Germans applied each unit. Now, the average reader will think World War One. hey, you had Sturmtruppen, which means that everybody was an elite SS man. Well, no, that was a concept developed in World War I for a fast battlefield application. And what you find with Sturmtruppen was that they were elite, very healthy, very strong but not as number numerical force uh, as you would have with a regular German military. Those guys worked up to a stature called the Stasstruppen, the assault force. And that's what you find fighting, for the most part, is a Stasstruppen fighting the major battles with elite Sturmtruppen added on to make sure that, be it uh, an efficient clout, is applied, be it with flamethrowers or with increased uh, pioneer engineer efforts or just the ability to use machine guns as lethally as possible. That's where it separates from the standard thinking of what was occurring in the American lines. We didn't have that elite fighting force that was mobile and going up and down the Western Front. We had folks in place holding the trench and under the French guise of sacrifice positions. So, so please go ahead. Yeah. So, um, so let's let's move uh, to April of 1918, and yeah. by this time the first division had been pulled out to go fight elsewhere, right? Um, yeah. And the 26th Yankee division is in place. So, yeah. uh, and then and and this leads us to the battle uh, that yeah. that your book is about, the Battle of Seshprey. So, if you can uh, give us a little background about. You know, why were the Germans attacking? What were they planning to do uh, there in April of 1918 against the Americans? Well, what happens at this time is the Russian front had collapsed. All the German divisions and part of the Austro-Hungarian moved west. So he had fresh fighting forces coming to augment the Western Front. 
And on 21 March, you had the major offensive of the war called Operation Michael take place, where the Germans wanted to basically destroy the British Army and the northern part of the Western Front and separate them from the French. So that defines all things, because what you find is French military command is trying to figure out how do we effectively plug the gaps from this brand new augmented force applying the most sophisticated firing techniques, thanks to Obes Bruckmüller and all of the things that that way of thinking accomplished. So the Western Front became the -the state-of-the-art battleground. The 1st Division being the only uh, unit that had been effectively assigned responsibility for this sector on their own was pulled out, and that was Pershing's favorite division. So he he managed to get them named by Foch. Okay, fine. We'll have the 1st Division move north and be able to augment the existing French and British forces should we need them. So there was a gap. Oh, by the way, instead of a a five-mile or eight-kilometer battle line where the Americans held at that time, it went to 18 kilometers when the YD showed up. So it basically almost tripled the area of responsibility for an American fighting force in one night. And what you find when the YD shows up is that they have already been blooded to the north at Chamdedam, brigaded with another French division. Understanding of what it took to hold ground and be in part of the French lines. So here it is. The Yankee division shows up, replaces the 1st Division. The 1st Division is now heading north. And then in May of 1918, they fight at Contigny. Yankee division holds ground. And they have three regiments on the line. To the left, you have the 104th Regiment. In the center, you have the 101st Regiment. And then where we're talking about for this battle, the Seshpray, Wawrumar area, the 102nd Infantry. The 102nd Infantry, mainly National Guard folks from Connecticut. So what you see is they're doing their job. But what happens in the discussion in the book is that you find out that the Americans are, you know, they're trying to become as effective as we can under these horrific environment situations. So they plan. They find ways to prop up the front lines. They do whatever they got to do in regards to putting the fight against the enemy. To be fair, the 1st Division had this ability to really be proactive and wanted to get into the fight right away. And so they were firing thousands of rounds of chemicals every day into the German lines, which basically annoyed them. And the Germans responded in kind. And so there was that ops tempo that was high throughout the entire first division was there. The YD shows up. They are basically doing what they got to do to hold the ground. To the east, of course, to the west of where the 102nd was, the 104th Regiment, that was Massachusetts, they had uh, a major skirmish on the 10th through the 13th of April, a place called Apremont. It's also called Bois Brule. And that first major battle between a German force and an American force took place there. And the Americans held, up, held the ground very effectively. They, the German division, the 5th Landwehr, was defeated for the most part. And then, then all of a sudden you shift 
to the east, and here at Bois-Romer and Seshki, you have these forces getting comfortable with how they're going to operate on a daily basis. What is intended by the Germans is a, they're testing the metal of the American forces. They want to see how effective is the National Guard, because obviously they're seeing that coming more and more early on because the National Guardsmen, for the most part, were citizen soldiers and understood what it took to, to carry a rifle and fire it and so on. But the Germans planned around the 1st of April, they said, we need to have an operation, and we called it Kirschbrüderte, which is cherry blossom. And it, the operation is going to be a raid of sorts. And it evolved into a raid that took on not only this village of Seshpre, but also the woods to the right, to the east, called Bois-Romera. And so you have the various battalions of the 102nd being farmed out to the sectors within the major sector that they're responsible for. The challenge for what we're talking about here is that the raid required a lot of augmentation by German artillery because they basically wanted to simulate what they had experienced in Operation Michael. They wanted to have this massive barrage that basically just devastates anything that the enemy is trying to hold on to. That psychology wanted to be applied against the Americans. And they wanted to make sure they understood this is for war. So when you see the battle start, massive bombardment. In fact, the experienced 169th Regiment of the French to the east notes in their war diary, this is incredible. They haven't seen it since Verdun. So that gives you an appreciation for how much they were trying to get <clears throat> the battle tempo established very quickly. What arguments evolved in the course of discussion in this particular operation is that the Germans intend to defeat the Americans and continue moving south. No. What they wanted to do was to upset the balance in this region so that the French and others other American units go to reinforce what's in place because they wanted to disrupt the ongoing reinforcement <clears throat> heading north for Operation Michael and Operation Georgia. So what you see from this dynamic is it's a very well thought out raid. And everybody, the Germans know their job. And oh, by the way, the intelligence is as thorough as it can be because everybody knows what sector they're going to work on, and they know the trench lines because they've been in it before. So this is part of the dynamic. So when you see the forces coming together, basically at, at 0430, uh, the Germans launch their offensive. They go into the forest at Bois-Romera. They go into the village of Seshpre. Oh, by the way, they go around the village, and they basically do a high water mark at the base of the hill ridge called Beaumont. And what they do is they link up and then they all proceed to go back into the village. The fascinating thing about when you read the accounts is that, again, the Americans, for the most part, held their ground. And it was a motley force. You had the 1st Battalion under Major George Rao. And then he had all the support troops doing what they normally did, the cooks, 
And, oh, by the way, when the 1st Division left, the 18th Infantry left them about 20 prisoners and said, uh, here, you guys, you take these guys off. We have more important things to do. we got a war to fight. And so it was a regular army, you know, here, take it and run. So they here's a, here's the why do defend uh, guarding these prisoners. And they were doing things like filling in holes and stuff like that. Well, all of a sudden, here comes the raid. And they started handing out rifles to these prisoners. Hey, you're part of the team now. And that's the beauty of the story is that everybody, for the most part, fought as an effective team, hand-to-hand, whatever. You know, the one story that comes out from everybody is one of the cooks is doing his thing, and in comes a stash trooping, and the cook proceeds to cut him in half with a meat cleaver. You know, that's great drama. You know, folks want to read that sort of stuff, I guess. But the point is that there was very, very intense hand-to-hand fighting for most of this battle that took place. Now, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so um, what is your assessment of how the Guard, National Guard did there um, in defending uh, against the Germans? You know, how, how do you judge their performance? Well, see, that's just it. The historians, for the most part, have blown off this, and they, everybody calls it a defeat. And, uh, in fact, one of my friends calls it the Kasserine Pass of World War I. I, I take issue with that because they didn't really lose any ground. And the sad story about our determinant of what is victory is the number of dead, the casualty counts. And I address that in a chapter because I want folks to understand it. They were trying to figure out, okay, the Germans lost so many bodies here and the Americans lost so many bodies there. So that means, so if you look at the numbers, we were just as victorious as they could have been. You know, and that's really what comes to terms in this particular discussion. And that's another ingredient why it's a, another lesson learned for the modern U.S. Army. Because they really have arguments of numbers. So the YD... I think, fought as valiantly as anybody fought in the First World War in the battles they were uh, fighting. Because you read the accounts, and they're holding the ground, and uh, a lot of them took casualties and so on and so on. And I just described one segue about the, the 18th Infantry prisoners doing their thing to augment. But, again, it was one of those things where there was no loss. Even if the Germans had intended to break through, what you find is the way the Allies, particularly the French, divided their defensive sector into position one. That's your front line. Position one, this is your second line. And position two, nothing got past one bis. And at all costs, nothing proceeded south of position two. And that was the psychology of everybody in the verb, they would have mobilized every possible resource. So the Germans, even if they had intended to go south to Toul or whatever, they would never have been able to make the difference because the Allies would have reinf- quickly reinforced that sector. So it was a well thought out defensive strategy that the French applied for the most part, most of the war. And the Americans learned from that sector how that was going to be part of their fighting operational ability. So, uh, did they lose a battle? I argue no, because they didn't lose any ground. 
Yes, there was a successful raid, if you want to call it that. Where it makes a difference in terms of our psyche is the Germans came in so fast that they captured about 180 prisoners. Again, body count. If you have lots of prisoners, that shows, hey, guess what? These are no longer combatants, and now we are able to make a difference in terms of fighting against a, a weaker force. But because you have the YD composed of four regiments, the 102nd was holding ground. The 101st in the middle was holding ground. And then, of course, the 104th, having just fought that battle, was still fighting there. And you had the entire 103rd Regiment that was going to be moved as necessary to fill in the gaps. So all things considered, the, the American Square Division was a very effective concept for fighting this type of war. Because you were able to flesh out the forces as quickly as you needed to. The Germans didn't have that luxury. Every There was no, re, you know, yeah, maybe one of the, reg, uh, the regiments was held in advance, but for the most part, they only had two regiments, not of the same equal strength of the Americans, but they still, but one thing too, you're talking about guys with three to four years of combat experience. These guys got it. They knew exactly what they had to do in a battlefront con- condition. So there was no confusion whereas the Americans were, for the most part, fighting you know, on new terms. So I hope that kind of opens up your awareness of what we're talking about here in terms of how we as a military are evolving. It's, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I, yeah, I think you, you did a great job in the book of describing all of that. And um, one of the things I just wanted to back up on and talk a little bit about is um, the uh, – Regular versus National Guard kind of uh, animosity, if you will, um, during the war. You know, Pershing's opinion. And and I know Major General Edwards, the commander of the 26th Yankee Division, was later relieved. Can you talk a little bit about that? Clarence Edwards uh, had a very noble career in the Philippines and such. And he became more uh, successful because... Politically, he came from Ohio, and Ohio had a lot of clout. Uh, look who became the president after Woodrow Wilson, Warren Harding, you know, from Ohio. So politic entered into a lot of deliberations on the military's thinking. Clarence was a good soldier, and he cared for his troops. Oh, by the way, when he was at West Point, he was an upperclassman to Pershing. So they knew each other from that day. But, you know, Pershing had held a resentment to Clarence because Clarence tended to be bombastic and so on and so on. And then what really kind of sealed the deal on people's resentment for him was he was the military aide to President Taft. So he had that political connection. And so everybody thought, okay, he's going to become the next chief of staff of the Army because he politically he's in the inner circle. Well, it didn't work out that way. But he became the general in charge of the first region, the New England region, which became the YD, the 26th Division. So Pershing knew Clarence, Clarence knew Pershing, so on and so on. What you find when you look at the the evolving relationship is that there was bad blood, mainly because at the Chamon headquarters, the equivalent of the Pentagon in the front area, 
where Pershing's men, to include George Patton, by the way, they occupied and did the staff work for the American Expeditionary Force. Those guys had a case of the butt against the YD. And it shows over and over and over. And it's just, you know, they were figuring these are guardsmen who really don't know their job. And, and so there was this ongoing animosity between the guard and the regular army because of just that. It started at the top. And I think that's one of the saddest stories that comes out of this is that you're talking about the fighting man. You know, how do you look at yourself if you realize that your commander doesn't care? By that, I mean the ultimate commander. They loved Clarence Edwards in the Yankee division because he fought for them every way possible. They were always right. You know, he was the overbearing parent. But I think that discussion being what it is helped set the stage for understanding the animosity between guard and regular. Now, Pershing was always looking for a way to fire Clarence. Where Pershing failed was he was getting rid of a lot of the dregs of the National Guard leadership. And there was not many good generals out there from the National Guard uh, early on. If he had taken the step and become politically brave and had Clarence stay in Washington, D.C. and work with General Marsh, working the political battle for the U.S. Army, I think he would have made major headway. Instead, he deferred to Clarence, allowing him to become a divisional commander in a battlefield environment. And I think he always regretted that. Because if you read the book on Pershing's biography, you know, he, in his own moments after the war, really rips into Clarence and just says he destroyed one of the best armies, best divisions we had. And I think that's been very unfair. You know, he should have made the decision, but he didn't. Now, from the standpoint of leadership, I, it'd be remiss not to mention John Henry Parker. John Henry Parker is the man who introduced the Gatling gun to the U.S. Army in the Spanish-American War. He's the one who figured out how to apply it in terms of a battlefield weapon. And in turn, at San Juan Hill, you know, he fired over the heads of the advancing American forces and caused major destruction. So he was a known entity. John Henry became the machine gun expert for the U.S. Army. In fact, his label went from Gatling Gun Parker to Machine Gun Parker. And one of the things about John Henry was he became the 102nd commander because Pershing needed to get regular officers that he knew and trusted in charge of these regiments. And so John Henry becomes the commander of the 102nd throughout this time. What you find is incredible bravery. John Henry got four distinguished service crosses, the second highest award for bravery, the American Army awards. He got four in the six months that he was on the front lines. He also got a silver star for his previous time in in, uh, the Spanish-American War, a silver star uh, certificate. And, you know, on and on and on. This guy was, he led. He was very effective in kind of bolstering up his soldiers' ability to fight at the moment they required him to fight. And the sad story is that he didn't make the general officer until after the war, and then they finally found a way to get him promoted to general officer, the kind of way, say, of 
thank you, John Henry, for what you did for your service to the nation. So he retired as a one star. But for the most part, what you see in the history of this battle is you see somebody who's committed to making sure that his troops get what they need to fight the effective battle. No. Is he perfect? No. But you find, just from knowing the history that you have over the decades, John, you find everybody has that moment of imperfection. The question is, how do you apply it in the circumstance that you're required to fight in? So so to sum up then... Um, yeah. What do you think that, you know, I know you've, you've talked a little bit about it here and there uh, in our discussion today, but what is the overall significance of this battle that you're writing about? You know, what is the takeaway for uh, the, you know, our, our reading, our readers out there uh, who are really interested in world war one? Well, first of all, I'll be the first one to tell you, this was a hard book to write. And it's a hard book to read. Why? Because I crammed in all this data all this factual data. There was no real opinion on my part. It's understand, if you want to clearly understand what war at this time, in this part of the country was all about, then you need to look at this book and read it slowly. Because what you find is the, the takeaway is that we have a tendency to gloss over and put in trite sayings. Pick up a book on World War One. What's the word most commonly used? Doughboy. I don't use one doughboy in this book for that reason. I said, I want you to understand these are soldiers fighting. And a lot of them didn't, probably didn't appreciate being called a doughboy. For the most part, what you find is soldiers learning how to fight. And oh, by the way, fighting very bravely and dying or getting wounded extensively. You know, this horror after horror after horror. And dealing in the environment we're talking about, weapons of mass destruction and so on. The saddest thing about the story is the legacy of the soldiers from this war is forgotten. If you look at the greatest generation, World War II, the anniversaries show up. Right now we're, we're celebrating the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. And, you know, everybody's remembering that and paying homage and so on and so on. What happened during the 50th anniversary of the Seshkray battle. It was the Tet Offensive. Did anybody in America want to commemorate a war, a military force in 1968? No way. And it's a set statement of our culture. So what you find is, here it is almost 100 years later, and the history of this war that was fought so valiantly and so credibly by Americans who came with the attitude of we're going to do the job as well as we can. And frankly, I think it's a numbers game because the Germans recognized because their U-boat offensive was failing that the Americans were arriving by the thousands every day. And, you know, you're down to mid-manning on the front lines and here you have 27,000 men divisions being formed and moving forward into the front line. So that psychology was just too much to bear. If you look at the book, a few things come up, one of which is you have to understand the the fight from all the combatants' side. What do the French think? What did the Germans think? By doing the research that I did, I uncovered some incredible facts that have been overlooked for 100 years. Do you realize the first decorated marine aviator fought at Seshpray? 
Ken Pickens Colbert. The Marine Corps did not know that Ken Pickens Colbert even existed. When I contacted him, I said, do you ever heard of this guy? No. Well, guess what? He's your first decorated Marine aviator in the history of the Marine Corps. And you know the Marines, man. They know everything there is to know about the Marine history. Well, I'm hoping they will fix that problem with Ken Pickens Colbert. By the way, he was an aerial observer. He wasn't a pilot, but he was an aerial observer who did an incredible job at Sesbury. The other th- fact is the Germans recognized the American fighting unit. Three days, no, five days prior to the Sesbury battle on 15 April, you have a private acting sergeant, supply guy, going into front lines. Long story made short, Private Louis Zegra is ambushed by a 30-man German raiding party. Louis takes on the raiding party single-handedly. He takes a bullet under the chin, comes out his left nostril. He proceeds to beat the crap out of that raiding party. He's unarmed. Well, he, he fired he fired one round and killed one guy. But the stories that come from the German side is this guy did it all. And it finally they overwhelmed him, and then they were able to drag him across no man's land where he became a prisoner for the rest of the war. The irony of ironies, and I'll read this to you, is that the guy who remembers that isn't an American, totally forgotten, isn't a French guy. It's the German general commanding the sector, Galwitz, who had one of the most prestigious careers of any German commander in World War I. So Galwitz writes in his memoirs, an American of the 26th Division, captured at the southern front by Givray, had defended himself mightily and refused all testimony. John, this is the sad story about our culture, is you have this an amazing military heroic action, totally forgotten. That guy lived, went back and had a life, you know, but because he was a German-American, they didn't want to give him any credit. That was part of the challenge. So what is remembered, John, about this place called Seshbury? To the American public, it's one thing, the dog. Stubby the dog, owned by Conroy, part of the headquarters company on Beaumont, got a shrapnel wound in the leg during the artillery bombardment. And then he lived and he went on to become the most recognized veteran of World War I. He was praised by Wilson. He was praised by Harding and he was praised by Coolidge. Now he gets the dog gets it all. There's a book out on the streets now about Stubby. Every parade magazine. If you look at my book in 2010 in the Gazette Telegraph, They had Stubby the Dog. That's all Americans remember about this battle is the dog. And I'm not trying to pass judgment. I'm just saying this is the reality. You know, I had no dog in the fight as it involved us to be able to go over what exactly transpired here. You have to understand the detail. I think I provide that. But at the same time, you've got to understand the legacy has yet to be really exonerated. And that's what I hope to see with people in the United States. The British got the book because this is a history press publication. But I hope the people in the United States recognize the fact that this is an amazing tribute to the American fighting man. Both 1st Division and Yankee Division. So I hope that helps. Yes, great. Thank you, Terry. So 
Um, I think that kind of wraps up our discussion of the book, but I want to ask you one last question, and that is, uh, you know, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but we want to give you the pitch on uh, what are you working on next that we could look forward to to see in print? Well, thanks so much for this opportunity. Um, When I did shooting in front, one of the guys said, well, when are you going to do the German side? I said, yeah, right. You know, like uh, it's going to happen overnight. And then a colleague, Paul Bobro from Smithsonian Institution, said, listen, I've got depth with Smithsonian working Russian. And he had edited a work on the Ilya Miramets. And so Carl and I started to collaborate and said, let's take on the Eastern Front. So we're right now working on the history of the Eastern Front, particularly emphasizing aerial reconnaissance. Well, in the discussions over the months, because Carl's got the network, thanks to his 30 years at Smithsonian, uh, we were able to find there was a book published in 2007, privately printed by Helmut Jaeger, living in Munich. It's all about German aerial reconnaissance and cameras. So I cold called Helmut and said, would you like to help us? So what we now have is a three-author effort underway to write the entire aviation history on the Eastern Front. Russians going into depth at Tannenberg, uh, just worked on a gorlichi tarnoff 1915 battle discussion. We've got the Brusilov Offensive in 1916 being worked, and on and on and on and on. Why is this important to people like yourself who are aviation historians of the First Order? Is because people have ignored like Seshprey, have ignored this part because it was so hard to do. Well, I can't speak German that well. I can order beer, but that's about as good as it gets. But I can at least appreciate what Helmut can find, who lives in Munich and is able to get the actual archives from the Bavarian War Archives. And the stories that we're telling are blowing my mind away. You realize the first combat application force of anybody using aviation resources was at Gorlici Tarnoff using a bombing slant reconnaissance force called BAO. I won't try to translate it for you. But these are the little nuggets that come to the surface. Oh, by the way, that fast battlefield translates into the Sturmtruppen concept that the Germans applied on the ground. So these are fun things, and we're working together. You know, it could be one volume, it could be four volumes. We don't care right now. We're just doing the work and mine the ore, and you know the thrill of the hunt. This is great stuff. It's amazing. Well, that sounds great, and we look forward to seeing that, uh, seeing the fruits of your labor on that topic. That sounds really exciting. So, Terry Finnegan, thanks so much for joining us today on New Books in Military History. We appreciate your time, and best of luck and take care. You're great. Thanks so much, John. All the best to you and family. Thank you. <laughs>